This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. Well, I am just so over the moon to have you on the podcast. I feel like I've just, I mean, I, when I first started the podcast, I found an article, I think it was in like the Salt Lake Tribune and it was yeah. about you and your story. And then, um, and then I listened to the podcast, which I think was on fair. And then I saw you on Saints Unscripted and I was just like, mm-hmm. wow, like he's just so awesome. And I know that a lot of things that you talked about in those different episodes that you did are similar things that people struggle with today. That's a big, you know, thing that challenges their testimony. And so I would love for you to just kind of jump in and tell us from the beginning your story and, you know, where you were when you were a kid, what your testimony was like then all the way up to just the the whole thing. would love to hear it. Okay, cool. Sure. I started out on the East Coast. Um, My parents were converts. So even though I do Mormon history, I don't have like a deep Mormon heritage or pioneer heritage or anything like that. But I was from a really devout family. I became, when I was 15, I became very devout myself. And so I started, it was partly a result of seminary and the teacher telling us to like set goals. And so I started setting spiritual goals so I could grow more, uh, learn to better keep my baptismal covenant. And so on. I was, I was a pretty maybe precocious teenager. I was like 15 then. That was wonderful. Then within a couple of years, I had encountered things that raised my first doubts. This kind of happened accidentally, right? So the local library where I was, we lived in Utah at this time, the local library carried all kinds of church-related books, including like critical things like Gerald and Sandra Tanner's Mormonism, Shadow or Reality. And I would sort of steal glances at some of this stuff, but I I knew that it was, you know, anti-Mormon, right? And so I had my guard up when I was dealing with that stuff. Then I encountered uh, things that raised doubt in another way. So it was actually family home evening. (laughs) And it wasn't anything that, uh, it wasn't anything in the lesson or anything like that. Um, My dad took us to Deseret Book in Orem. He offered to let us each get any church book that we wanted. This was our family meeting activity. And so there um, in the general authority section between Boyd K. Packer and Joseph Hilding Smith, there was this book by B.H. Roberts titled Studies of the Book of Mormon. And um, for uh, people in the audience who may not be familiar with this, uh, so, or, or with B.H. Roberts, B.H. Roberts was a general authority He was one of the church's best scholars in the early 20th century. Uh, He had edited the history of the church, written a comprehensive history of the church, written doctrinal books, and so on. And so I I knew of this guy, you know. He had died back in the 30s, and before he died, he had written a manuscript, uh, these studies of the Book of Mormon, that it was actually uh, trying to create sort of a steel man version of the case against the Book of Mormon. So sort of, or, or you could say like a devil's advocate case against the Book of Mormon in order to inspire Latter-day Saint scholars to figure out these issues better that he was raising. Um, so for instance, he, he raised the issue of how quickly would all the languages among Native Americans have been able to evolve given the linguistic diversity of them and and so on. And he was comparing these things with the Book of Mormon and concluding, well, the Book of Mormon doesn't look ancient, you know, based on these arguments. And Joseph Smith maybe could have written it. And so I I was really shocked. Like I said, I, I was super devout and I I had not had any questions about the history of the Book of Mormon. So uh, Nephi was just as real to me as George Washington. You know, I hadn't question the existence of the one any more than I had the other. This question then started to open up everything. If if maybe the Book of Mormon wasn't true, then, you know, what about Christ and the resurrection? What about God and life after death? 
I came sort of close to becoming agnostic at 17, but I, I, I never, I didn't really at that point let go of my faith. I just had a more tenuous grasp on it. I still believed, but it was sort of effortful to believe. So I was able to kind of start putting those issues more in the back of my mind, sort of partly resolve them over the next uh, year and a half or so. And during that time, I started doing Mormon history. So when I was 17, I uh, was when I first went to the LDS Church Archives and started doing archival research. I would, I would show up my knee-length shorts and my T-shirt and <laughs> you know spend the day during the summer like researching or after school. Um, at that point, I was going to East High in Salt Lake, and so I would just take the bus from East High down to the church archives and do research. I wanted to understand church history because it was sacred history. I wanted to understand Joseph Smith because I looked at the amount of revelation that we had through Joseph Smith. I mean, you look at like in the Bible, how many books were written by the same person, how much material comes to us through the same person. Well, you know, Isaiah is a long book, you know, um, there are five books attributed to Moses. Joseph Smith, right, he's the revelator for the entire Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon, you know, and so there's a lot. So I figured if I wanted to understand Revelation better, like the process of Revelation, I should try to understand Joseph Smith more. And Joseph Smith became kind of a hero figure for me. I had, at that point, I had sort of some problems with the father figures in my life, you could say. I wasn't getting along with my adoptive dad. I hadn't seen my natural dad in a long time. Joseph Smith felt like kind of a father figure to me spiritually. And this, this became important later when I, when I was disillusioned with Joseph Smith, <laughs> right? That was a big deal for me. And so um, I became, in essence, kind of a Joseph Smithologist, right? This is basically what I've biggest part of what I've devoted my life to, to this point, really is like wrestling with religion, spirituality, and particularly trying to figure out this Joseph Smith character, what he did, how he thought, what his motives were, and so on. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I got started in Mormon history. I've been on a mission to Texas, Bible Belt, good experience. I came back from my mission and just immediately picked up doing church history projects again. Started going back to the church archives, um, researching polygamy, researching all sorts of things about Joseph Smith, researching the Book of Mormon, priesthood restoration events, and so on. You know, there's something when, when we read a book of history or an article the conclusions have already been pulled together for us. Everything's been made sense of already intellectually by the author. And often if we're reading church history, it's also been made sense in some way spiritually by the author. But when you're doing your own research, it falls on you to make sense of things for yourself. Mm -hmm. I was making new discoveries about Joseph Smith Sometimes I didn't know entirely what to do with those. You know, I, I came up with questions for which I did not have good answers. And so I gradually, during this time, during my 20s, I didn't really realize it, but I was gradually losing my faith. And I lost my faith first in the church, right, in the Restoration. And like I said, I be, became very you know, disillusioned with Joseph Smith, I started thinking that, you know, I, I developed a new working model of him as an opportunist. I thought he was just kind of in it for himself, you know. I consequently really emotionally wrestled with him, this sort of fallen hero figure for me. Eventually, I also lost faith in Christ and lost faith in God that had to do in part with the, the problem of suffering, especially the sufferings of children. That was something that I didn't know how to square with God's love. And so 
I ended up leaving the church. Like I, I stayed active for a while because I saw good things in the church. But eventually, within a few years, I decided to go inactive. And then I felt like there was no place in the church for me. I was, by this time, an atheist. I didn't feel like I wanted to be able to have something to offer to my community that would be useful. But I felt like the things, things the way that I was seeing them in my research would not be useful to the church. They would be detrimental I didn't feel like I had anything to contribute and I didn't feel like I had a place. And so I left. I, I actually had my name removed from the records of the church. So I, I sent in a letter requesting that my name be removed from the church records. When the letter came back telling me that I was no longer a member of the church, I expected to feel liberated and I actually felt cut off. I felt, I felt bad. I felt like, um, like, why did I, why did I do this again? You know, like, um, this is the only real community that I've ever been part of and I've left it. And, you know, if I had wanted to come back to the church, they would have wanted me to believe. And that would have been a problem for me at that point. I, I initiated what I refer to as a kind of personal wandering in the wilderness where I was, um, I was very involved in the sort of ex-Mormon social community here in Utah, along the Wasatch Front, went to lots of events. I went to a couple times to what they call the Ex-Mormon Conference that they were the Ex-Mormon Foundation put on every year. So one of my first steps back to God was, really came through gratitude. So I've always been interested in psychology. One area of psychology that I became interested in is what's known as positive psychology. So this is really about, like, like much of psychology traditionally has been about how do human beings sort of go wrong, right? What goes wrong in the human psyche? Positive psychology is just the opposite. Positive psychology looks at kind of how, what, what goes right with human beings? What makes people happy? What are the, the strengths or virtues that human beings can develop? And so I was reading a book uh, just because I wanted to be a happier person, I was reading a book on the psychology of gratitude by Robert Emmons, Bob Emmons. He's a he's actually the world's premier researcher on the psychology of gratitude. He's also a devout Christian. I was reading in Bob's work, and he really showed that gratitude it had a remarkable number of benefits for people, people who were more grateful were happier, they were more resilient, they slept better, they were healthier, but also they were kinder. They had more meaning in their lives. They were enveloped in a kind of web of relationships with other people. I realized from reading this book that gratitude wasn't just something that I wanted to feel. It was something that I wanted to be, right? That I wanted to become a really grateful person. So I started uh, keeping a gratitude journal. And before the gratitude journal, I didn't realize it, but I was, I was mildly depressed. <laughs> I just, I was sort of feeling harassed by life a lot, just this dumb little events that would happen. Within a few weeks of starting the gratitude journal, my outlook started to brighten. Um, just, uh, I started to realize how wonderful life was. I was feeling so much gratitude for so many gifts in my life that I wanted to know more who should I be grateful to and who should I express this gratitude to. You know, I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so there really, in a way, there wasn't a, a place entirely for me to direct that gratitude to. And so that was kind of a first step toward God because I really was... I think in a lot of ways I was longing for God. You know, I was wanting to have this center, the spiritual center of my life. I certainly wanted my life to have a larger meaning. You know, I had day-to-day -day meanings in my life, but there was no sense of a larger purpose of things. Even though that's that's something that had always been important to me. When my when I was a teenager, my sort of personal spiritual quest was driven by a sense of desire for a sense of meaning and purpose, ultimate meaning. And so I was reading in a, 
publication um, probably won't be familiar to most out there. Um, a magazine called Skeptic, Skeptic Magazine. It's it's kind of what it sounds like. It's put together by a well-known skeptic, Michael Shermer. Uh, and they have articles kind of debunking anything supernatural. So this religious beliefs, ESP, you know, certain alternative health practices and so on. There was an ad in the magazine for a book called Biocosm. It, the ad purported that this book would explain how there could be a larger purpose behind the universe without anything supernatural. And I thought, like, wow, <laughs> that sounds like a book for me. You know, that, that's where I was. I, I didn't believe in the supernatural, but I longed for a larger sense of purpose. And so reading the book, I mean, basically the book's in two halves. In the first half, the author really lays out a scientific problem called the problem of the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, of the constants of the universe for the existence of life. And the basic idea is if each of the basic parameters of the laws of physics you could set it like with a, a tuner knob, how precisely would you have to set it in order for life to be able to exist in the universe? You know, how narrow is that band? And it turns out the band is incredibly narrow. If you, you know, increase gravity by one billionth or, or you decrease it by one billionth, you end up either with, you know, a universe where all the matter collapsed into black holes at the beginning or a universe where all the matter spread out evenly across the universe. There were no galaxies, no stars, and so no, no planets with life. The author showed that this was the case with all the laws of physics, all the basic laws of physics. And then he cited another scientist, a very well-respected scientist, one of the scientists who first helped discover black holes, saying that the chances of the constants of the universe being fine-tuned for the existence of life the way they are by chance was about 1 in 10 to the 200th power. Now, that number is so big, it almost doesn't mean anything, right? Like, like a trillion is... One in a trillion is 10 to the 12th. One in 10 to the 200th is just this mind boggling number. I've realized that, like, based on chance, like, we shouldn't be here at all. And so then I was really primed for the second half of the book. I was like, okay, you know, what's, what's the answer? Because he, he not only established the fine tuning but he dismissed some of the attempts to explain it, which I'd heard about some of these attempts and thought they were compelling. And actually they're not at all. I thought, okay, well, what's the answer? You know, what, what caused this? And his answer that he gives is really kind of nutty. <laughs> he says that the universe back at the beginning was fine-tuned for the existence of life by our distant, distant descendants not like ancestors, descendants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that at like the end of the universe, our distant descendants are going to do something to make it restart with certain constants. And he says like time is a closed loop. It just goes in like a giant circle. And I, I thought he thinks this is more likely than God. <laughs> you know, like I, I had not believed in God, but I didn't think the idea of a mind behind the universe was outlandish, you know, whereas this, this seemed to me outlandish. And so um, the author had given me this giant problem, but no solution, right? The promised solution didn't work. And so I started thinking about a lot of things about life, about the universe. I thought about how Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. The universe seems like a, a, a logically, rationally structured place, but why should it be? Mm -hmm. So I started to actually believe in a mind behind the universe. I started to believe again in a God. I, was, I became basically a deist. And then I started reconsidering an earlier experience that I'd had. So one of those trips that I made to the church archives after high school when I was 18, I was headed back home. I was going to catch a bus 
at a certain crosswalk that's no longer there on State Street in Salt Lake. And as I was stepping off this curb, as I had many times before, I had a voice in my mind tell me, don't, don't go out in front of that car. And there was a big boat of a car coming around the rounding through the corner, a Buick or Oldsmobile or some other, you know, giant thing. So I stopped and uh, just let the car pass in front of me. And as I did, I could see um, that there was a driver and there was a front seat passenger and they were both looking down on the floor for something like somebody's big gulp had spilled or something, you know, I realized I would have died. You know, I would have been hit by this car and yet I wasn't because of this warning. And so for years that had been like uh, an evidence for me for the existence of God. But then I had come to question even that before I left the church, I had started thinking, well, 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust. You know, why should I think God saved me? You know? And so I was kind of really sort of denying my own experience, right. By, saying, well, this, this larger context invalidates this experience that I had. But now at Salt Lake again, I had come to believe in some sort of God. I happened to be passing by that, that place every day on my way to work. I would walk to, I, did, I worked out of the LDS Family History Library at the time. I'd walk past the spot where my life was saved, and I came to realize by stopping at that spot and thinking about it, that there was no way that I could have known what was going to happen with that car, that I received that warning from somewhere beyond myself. And so now I started believing that not only was there a God, but this God cared about us and intervened. I wanted a closer relationship with God. I started looking into religions again, I briefly became a member of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Baha'i faith is it's actually a really expansive, really cool faith. It started around the same time as um, the Elias Church, but over in Persia. <laughs> the founding principles really include the idea that all the major religions were founded by prophets sent by God. Um, they make a big deal out of like the, the oneness of humankind that, that God has made us all equal. God has made us all the same and that God wants us to be brought together more fully into a greater unity. And so this, this really appealed to me. I was inspired by many of the teachings. I became a Baha'i. And then within two or three months after that, just the, most disastrous calamity struck. So I, I had a younger brother, uh, my youngest brother. He was 25 at the time. His name was Charles. And Charles, I've never met anyone who knew Charles who didn't like him, right? Um, it's common to say things, positive things about people after they're gone, but everybody spoke well of Charles while he was still here, you know? I talked to him uh, the night before he died and everything seemed okay. And the next day he was gone. And officially there was never any cause of death. Oh. Here's that it was actually probably that he, he mixed medications that interacted and that just, he just stopped breathing. I, at this time, I had had a kind of vague sense of the afterlife. Maybe there's some sort of ethereal afterlife. But I really was uncertain about a lot of things. And so Charles's viewing was really the most terrible experience. It's the most terrible thing that I've ever seen. Everyone was just completely torn apart. And I saw my brother's body laid out there. And um, I thought, this is the last time I'm going to see my brother. I thought even if there was some sort of mental existence after death, I wouldn't see him as a person, right? I wouldn't know him, his, his mannerisms, uh, his appearance and so on would all be gone, I assume. 
And after that experience, I really started wondering more about the afterlife, right? I started wondering more about the the Christian claim, right, that there's a resurrection. And so I started reading in that. A, a friend of mine who's a very devout Christian uh, gave me a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God by the scholar N.T. Wright. Wright goes through all of the resurrection passages in the Bible and uh, analyzes them carefully, puts them in their historical context. And he concludes from all of this that in order for the early Christians to have believed that Jesus was risen for the dead, two things had to have happened. Uh, one is the tomb had to be empty, and two, they had to have seen him. He then argues from those two things for the probability of the resurrection. I, I became persuaded right, that Christ really had risen from the dead and that I would see my brother again. And so one day after work, I, I, I wasn't working for the church. Like I said, I was an ex-Mormon at the time, but I, I was doing estate research in the church history and the family history library. One evening after work, I actually had been pondering all this and just realized I was completely convinced that God had tried to reach out to the world, reach out to me through Christ. And so I went into one of the little side classrooms that they have there that was empty and prayed and just accepted Christ, confessed my sins, my sinfulness. And on the way home that night, walking home, I just experienced wave after wave of peace coming over me. And, and I like to say it's not peace like just like an absence of trouble. It's peace like a positive, palpable presence, right? Something there. Like it felt so thick you could cut it with a knife. I felt that God loved me. I felt God's love overwhelmingly. And so I started kind of exploring, going to some different churches and so on. I didn't consider at that time going back to the LDS church because I, I thought that I knew for sure from my research on Joseph Smith that, you know, Joseph Smith was a, a scoundrel and, you know, he made these things up. And yet, as I was reading in the New Testament and so on, trying to draw closer to Christ, I started to remember that at an early period, earlier period of my life, what really had helped me often to feel closest to Christ was to read the Book of Mormon. And so I thought, well, I know that Joseph Smith wrote it, but it seemed useful to me in the past, so I'll, I'll try reading it again. And so I started reading the Book of Mormon devotionally alongside the New Testament, and I was getting a lot from it. Then I got really confused. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? I, I know that you know, Joseph Smith wrote this. This isn't what it purports to be. Why am I using it to grow spiritually? And so I just decided to kind of temporarily put all that up on the shelf. I went to grad school to study history further. You know, during the first part of that grad school, I thought, I'm just going to focus on school. I'm going to try to mostly leave these religious questions off to the side. And so I did at first for one of my classes. So I was going at this point, I was going to Utah State and studying with Philip Barlow, who's an excellent Latter-day Saint scholar. But I had continued all my Mormon history studies, you know, full, full bore. In fact, I had so some of your, uh, some of the audience may be familiar with Brian Hales's three-volume set titled Joseph Smith's Polygamy. In it, Brian had wanted to cite every source that had ever been cited in anything that had ever been written on Joseph Smith and polygamy, and then see what additional sources could be found. But Brian, he's an anesthesiologist. He did not have time to go be an archive rat, right, in all these archives day after day and mine out the, the 1,500 sources that he ended up using in these books. 
So he hired me. And so I had continued my research on Joseph Smith, both, both with my own projects and with you know paid research like I did for Brian. In the research that I did, right, I encountered, you know, I mean, if you think about the difficult areas of Joseph Smith's life, polygamy would be one of these areas, right? I mean, this is, this is, it's one of the things that had disturbed me when I left the church and I had, you know, written my own letter of resignation. I listed several reasons why I was leaving and Joseph Smith's polygamy was one of them, you know, but then subsequently, right, I had the chance to do all this research in these, you know, hundreds and thousands of sources on Joseph Smith and polygamy. So I was well aware of the man, right? Like I, I might've mentioned this earlier, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm essentially a Joseph Smithologist, right? This is, this is what I do. So for this class that I was taking from Philip Barlow titled uh, Joseph Smith Biography and Autobiography, I was doing a paper on how, how Joseph Smith became a seer. And, and I'd come to the hypothesis that the explanation that Joseph Smith was given for how he became a seer early on was his first vision. That like, it's literally his first vision. It's his first experience of second sight, spiritual sight. So it's what makes him a seer. And so I was doing a paper on this. And while I was doing the paper, a lot of things just really started to come together for me, things that I had not seen before. So for instance, I had overlapping work about seers in the Book of Mormon. I was doing work on a book that's now published on what we can know about the last 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. And so in my research on Justice Smith's first vision and on the last 116 pages and just the Book of Mormon text that we have, I suddenly had a kind of insight that tied a lot of different things together. And so, for instance, I was looking at um, how do people become seers in LDS scripture? And so in the Book of Ether and the Book of Mormon, the brother of Jared becomes a seer. In the account of how he becomes a seer on the top of this mountain, Mount Shalom, there are lots of things that I suddenly saw parallel things that happened in the temple, right? So. Uh -huh. Joseph Smith had said that in Nauvoo, that anciently mountaintops served as temples. Here, you, you've got the brother of Jared's experience. It's on a mountaintop, right? It says that he speaks with the Lord through the veil. And during this experience, the Lord puts his hand through the veil, right? He's going to touch the stones. The brother of Jared sees his hand. And the Lord tests the brother of Jared's faith and knowledge by asking him a series of questions beginning with a question about his hand. Then when he's passed the test, the Lord admits him into his presence and tells him, you've been redeemed from the fall, which evokes the whole backstory of Adam and Eve. And the Lord gives him two additional stones, these, these white stones, uh, the interpreters. Now, Joseph Smith later talked about everyone who enters the celestial kingdom will receive a white stone, and he quoted, the book of Revelation, Revelation 2.17, to him that overcometh, I will give unto him a white stone in the which is written a new name, which no man knoweth, save him that receiveth it. And I thought about the fact that in this narrative, we're actually never told the name of the person this is all happening to in the Book of Mormon, at least, the brother of Jared, right? is why we call him the brother of this other guy. And so there's a theme here of sort of an esoteric name, a hidden secret name. But I was seeing all these things where it was like, oh, wow, like, what is the, what is the Nauvoo Endowment doing in the Book of Mormon? Like, I, I had been convinced that there was no, um, Joseph Smith didn't know anything about the Nauvoo Endowment until he, he became a Freemason in 1842. And instead now, I was seeing the endowment all over the Book of Mormon. I was seeing it in accounts of Justice Smith's first vision and his acquiring his first seer stone, his white stone. I was seeing it in accounts that we have about what was in the last 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. And so my mind was kind of blown. Right? My mind is blown right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just hearing this, it's like, wow. 
it's wild, right? Because one of the reasons why people, one reason people sometimes become disillusioned is, or, or, or one aspect of their disillusionment maybe, is that they go to the temple and they're like, this is weird. I've never encountered anything like this before. It's you know, it's totally different from my church experience outside the temple. Yeah. Except maybe it's not, right? I mean, if you've got that much of the endowment in the Book of Mormon, then we've encountered these things before. We just haven't recognized them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, this this really stood out to me. And in further research, there, there are some lesser known accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. And there are details in some of the accounts that get kind of overlooked. So we tend to think the first vision it's all simple in terms of the location of the experience. It all just happens there in that grove, right? Like the father and the son come down, all the action is set there. But Joseph says some things in different accounts that would suggest otherwise. So in one account, he says, my mind was taken away from the natural objects which surrounded me. So he wasn't looking around and seeing the trees and so on anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like place else. In another account, I think it's the, the Joseph Smith history account that we all know, he, he says at the end of the experience, when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, gazing into heaven, right? Well, came to myself again suggests something maybe different than just he's seeing all these things happen there in the grove, right? Um, in Nauvoo, he was talking once about the first vision and he suddenly started saying, you know, anyone who's gazed into heaven for five minutes knows this, that, and the other. It's interesting that he's saying that in connection with describing the first vision, right? It makes it sound like during the first vision, he actually gazes into heaven. When you think about how the Book of Mormon starts, the Book of Mormon starts with Lehi having his own first vision. In that experience, the, a pillar of fire comes down. Well, this, this isn't just like a sign, right? In the Old Testament, in the story of the Exodus, the pillar of fire is the presence of God that goes with the children of Israel. So the, the presence of God is coming down to, to Lehi. And then Lehi is lifted up to God's presence in heaven, right? Where he sees God sitting upon his throne, surrounded by angels. And so there's this pattern here of God comes down to the man's level to lift the man up to God's level. Right. Mm -hmm. This, based on different accounts of the first vision, different details that Joseph gave, this started to be my model for understanding the first vision. That it was actually sort of a multi-part experience, right? Where first you have the, the divine comes down to Joseph Smith, but then the divine lifts Joseph Smith up to God's own level. He has a heavenly ascent. As I thought about all this, it just seemed incredibly powerful and I was, I found it remarkable to think, and this guy's like 14, 15 years old, and he's already trying to come up with the seed for a ritual, a temple ritual he's not going to give for decades later. Like it just, it seemed way too forward thinking for a teenager, just mm -hmm. something else was going on, you know? And so that actually began to open me up to different possibilities, I started realizing that I had been approaching Joseph Smith strictly with a kind of negative set of questions where I would always ask, any anytime Joseph Smith opened his mouth and said something or anytime he did something, the question I would ask was, what was in it for him? Mm -hmm. Right. I saw him as an opportunist. Well, I started wondering, is my question really limiting what I'm able to see, right? So, so much of what we can see in life depends on the questions that we ask. And this is, this is true when we're going through a faith crisis, right? Because if the questions that we start to ask become exclusively negative sorts of questions, well, what are the things about church history that are different from what I have been told? Or what are the difficulties in church history? What are the things that I can see that the modern church does that I don't like? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't give those things consideration, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but can become yeah. focused on that. And the questions that we ask guide our focus. And so the questions I've been asking were questions that just made me look 
for negative aspects of justice selfishness, basically. Right. So I started broadening the set of questions that I asked, and I was soon able to see things that Joseph Smith was doing for his other for other people. For instance, he did a lot of things for his family. He certainly wasn't just focused on himself. Mm-hmm. I have come to see a ton of evidence for Joseph Smith's sincerity. One thing uh, people sometimes say is we can't read the minds of the people of the past. We can't know what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, we humans have been gifted with social intelligence. Um, the next time you make a trip to the store, you have to infer the intentions of a number of people that you've never met before in order to arrive at the store safely. We're actually quite good at attributing motives as long as we have enough information to work with. Historians actually are in a really good position to assess the motives of historical figures. And here's why. Let's take the people who knew Joseph Smith during his lifetime. Let's say Emma. Let's say Brigham Young. Emma is going to know certain things about Joseph Smith that we can't know, at least not very well, right? The, uh, his appearance, the tone of his voice, his mannerisms, the sweet nothings that he said, you know, whatever, right? Like, these are things that would be difficult for us to know, but she could know very directly. Um, however, we have a set of historical information about Joseph Smith that was actually much wider than her experience of him. Emma wasn't there in the core meetings that Joseph was part of, but we have minutes from those meetings. Emma wasn't there in the court when Joseph was acting as justice of the peace, but we have the minutes of those meetings, right? Emma wasn't there for the conversations Joseph had with his plural wives, but we have accounts from many of the plural wives, right? And so any given person in Joseph Smith's life would have actually only seen a small sliver of his life But we have records and accounts from thousands of people who encountered him in tens or hundreds of thousands of actions. In some ways, we can know Joseph Smith better than anyone who knew him while he was alive. Because we can get a bigger picture. We can see the patterns of his behavior across time. And as I've looked at the patterns of Joseph Smith's behavior, Something that comes out crystal clearly is that Joseph Smith was religiously sincere. And we can see evidence for this from the time he's a child, when, for instance, his mother, Lucy Max Smith, writes that Joseph, from the time he was a child, was always especially interested in any discussions of a religious nature. Well, if Joseph Smith is never really a religious person, Religion is just his shtick as a con man. Mm -hmm. Surely we're not supposed to believe that as a young child, he's already thinking this. Someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a religious figure. And so I better figure out religion in order to make my shtick. No, he's he's genuinely interested in matters of religion and spirituality from the time he's a young child. Also, his parents believed him. If you've got kids... You know, if your child is inclined toward telling tall tales, right? Mm -hmm. Um, His parents did not see that in him. They believed him. They were were in a position to know. We can see um, the way that Joseph responds to his childhood leg surgery. There are actually things that he's trying to do in the context where he's trying to help his father uh, during that experience. There's all kinds of evidence that I see that Joseph Smith was frequently watching for signs of divine providence in his life and then acting in accordance to those with those signs of divine providence, like looking for what God, what is, what is God trying to tell me he wants me to do through the events of my life? Well, uh, uh, an opportunist doesn't care what God or the universe is trying to tell him. He only cares what he wants. But that's, that's not this guy. This is a very different kind of guy than that. And so I see that even, even strictly as a historian, right? Like totally apart from if, if I were not a Latter-day Saint, I would see it the exact same way because this is, this is I've devoted much of my life to understanding this man. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, like he was religiously sincere. So after I started getting this fuller picture of Joseph Smith, 
I started to reconsider having left the church. I started thinking again about my earlier spiritual experiences because I had had them. I'd had spiritual experiences in the church. I had just come to dismiss them and think they were products of my own mind or something. But, but when it came down to it, there were some, like the one that I mentioned earlier, that had saved my life, where ultimately it was impossible to do that with them. I remember thinking, if I ask myself, what is the testimony of my life's experience regarding the church? Is it, is it true? You know, I, I remember thinking, well, of course. You know, of course it is. Like, because my, my questions had not been about my own experience. They'd really been about things I was finding in the history and how do I, how do I make those things work? How do I put them together? And so I initiated a return to the church. I was back in the church you know, within two months to my, to my shop, within two months of like approaching a bishop about that, I was just really beautifully re-embraced by the church. I had feared that there would be something punitive in the process of coming back. Couldn't have been further from the reality. The bishop was wonderful. The people in the ward were wonderful. People online that I had previously been arguing with <laughs> Latter-day Saints, there were hundreds, there were a couple hundred of them who came onto message board where I announced my return to the church to greet me, to welcome me. And, I, and I've been back for several years now. It's been a marvelous, beautiful experience. And I can tell you with certainty, like the, well, well, I'll share this. So when I wrote my letter to resign from the church, I wrote it with the intention of making it so that I could never come back to the church. I thought I might be tempted at some point to when I go back and I thought I'm going to make that impossible. And so I, in my letter, I like bore my anti-testimony. Basically I gave all kinds of reasons why the church wasn't true and so on. I found out when I was in the process of coming back to the church that I was going to need to, that we were going to need to talk about that letter. And I went home and I found a copy of the letter and then I cried. And I, th I thought, they're, they're never going to let me back into the church, you know? And so I called up the bishop in tears and he said to me, he said, son, if the church couldn't forgive, it couldn't be the Lord's church. It is a gospel of forgiveness. I've been welcomed back beautifully and it's, it's been a wonderful experience. So incredible what you shared about, I mean, I, I had heard part of it, but you actually didn't go into as much detail into, and what I heard before. And, um, and so, I mean, this time you went into more detail and to hear that from you is so, I mean, it strengthens my own testimony so much because it's like me being in this place of, um, just having people t tell things to me all the time on the internet, like the church isn't true because of this and the church isn't true because of this. And sometimes they say things I've never even heard before. One of those things was the Freemason thing that somebody said to me and I didn't understand. And so I started doing some research and I heard what you said about it. And I called my mom immediately and I just told her everything that you said. And it was like all of these pieces to this puzzle they fit so beautifully and almost looking at it now, I'm thinking if these things that are in the temple endowment are in other places throughout history, like to me, it proves that maybe Joseph Smith didn't just make up this thing for the temple. Maybe it is something that is, you know, through other places in history. And I mean, I am by no means a historian in any way, but in my mind, that completely made sense that like God's hand is in all of these different places. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just appreciate you sharing this so much because it just strengthens my testimony so much. And like, I just think about all the people who struggle with all of these hard questions. And if there's anybody that mm -hmm. has just completely dived into everything there is to know about church history and just turned it upside down and went through every single square inch of it. It's you. And to find your way back in such a beautiful way is just so, 
I mean, my testimony is stronger hearing your story. So thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And we are going to do a part two to this. And I know that everybody listening to this is going to be over the moon to know we're doing a part two where listeners can ask questions for Dawn and you can submit them and I'll post, we'll post a link on our website where you can submit questions. And then are you still up for that, Dawn? Part oh, two? Totally, totally. And also I'd be interested in going over um, kind of as a follow-up to this discussion like some of the things that I learned more generally about wrestling with faith and doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also happy to take questions. Yes. I would love that. I think that a lot of people, they, especially right now, I mean, people close to me that have left the church over a lot of questions that feel unanswered. And I think that, I don't know, like you just so beautifully are able to find peace with hard questions. And I think that it would be a huge benefit for people to be able to just have you as kind of a sounding board and, you know, and to give your advice when it comes to faith and doubt. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, round two coming soon and I can't wait. (laughs) Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, There's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.